This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Doug Munson. Doug is the head of advisory services at Credit Intel. He is the founder and former principal of MTN Retail Advisors. Um, happy to have him here. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks, Chris. Happy to happy to join you. So, Doug, tell us a little bit about you, where you are, and um, who you are, and we'll sure. go from there. Well, great. Well, thank you. I appreciate the the opportunity. Um, well, I, I'm probably first and foremost on this podcast defined by my retail uh, background. I, I I like to think I have some other diverse uh, you know interests out there, but but I've spent uh, 38 years uh, now uh, this month in in the grocery uh, retail sector uh, and started out in the operational side. Um, and worked my way up through the end the operation uh, was a produce manager for about nine years and then uh, happened to have an opportunity uh, to to grow uh, into the real estate side of this at uh, Smith's Food and Drug Centers, uh, now part of Kroger. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we've been based out of Salt Lake City um, uh, prior to the the acquisition with Credit Intel and uh, but John Tippetts uh, and myself, the, the principals of MTN, we've, uh, for some reason, we've gravitated down to Southern Utah. So that's where I live now is in St. George, Utah, about 80 miles north of uh, Las Vegas. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, so will you be at the ICSE show, the convention in Las Vegas? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm there with all the speed dating. <laughs> well, well, given you're 80 miles away, is that a... Is that a stay overnight or you go home, sleep in your own bed? No, I think I'm going to stay overnight. Those are long days, as you know, Chris. So I'll uh, I'll, I'll stay overnight and uh, take advantage of being there on site. Got it. Yeah. So 38 years in the business, so you're a rookie. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, still learning every day. <laughs> so you went from uh, being uh, on the grocery side and then after you were on the grocery side, you were on the landlord side for a bit, right? Yeah, for a short stint. That's exactly right with Phillips Edison. Yeah, correct. And then after you left the landlord side, you started MTN? That's correct. Uh-huh. So tell us about what, I think a couple things. One, tell us what made you think about being an entrepreneur and starting your own business. And then tell us how this concept of, well, tell us what MTN was and still is today and then how that concept evolved and what made you think that that was a great idea yeah well look um you know is i i think what what's interesting about my you know my career path is um you know having again worked operationally and you know really understanding how the grocery store works and then moving into the real estate analytics side um i spent five years with uh again with smith's food and drug centers kroger um, and then was recruited uh, back east. I spent about three years with Ahold Giant Foods out of Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And then, Chris, to your point, I you know I was fortunate enough to to uh, be recruited by Phillips Edison and spent a year there. And and really, MTN, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit, I guess, was <laughs> was kind of founded by the fact that I, you know, having been on the retail side and understanding you know, the needs of, of what the grocers are looking at when they look at a site, um, an opportunity. And then, and then again, being with, with Phillips Edison and understanding that side of the equation as a, you know, a landlord or a developer is trying to, you know, put information in front of the, the, the grocery tenant. It was a, it was an interesting intersection because one, you know, I could really see where that disconnect was between developer and and the grocery retailer in the information that was being provided. And so, you know, it, it was, I think it was just uh, the foundation of, of the idea was, you know, as I, especially as I was at, at, uh, at, at working for the retailers and, and I would see all kinds of packages being submitted to us as a, as a grocer. Um, some as, you know, 
is unsophisticated as maybe a Rand McNally map and a little star on it and saying, hey, we have a site here. And then I would get, you know, reports that would be 45 pages, kind of canned reports of demographics. At the end of the day, I, I always knew what our charge was working for the retailer or my charge, and that was to forecast sales at a very accurate level using the tools and, and the, the database and the software that the grocers employ every day. So that, that was really the foundation, Chris, is, is, you know, being that intersection and sort of serving as an intermediary, if you will, to, to you know, to landlord and to the grocery tenants and, and really defining information that, that was useful and critical, you know, to both groups and, and be able to provide that. That was really the foundation of starting MTN. And for those who don't know, what is MTN? Sure. Yeah, so really it, what we are is um, started as it and, and still to this day, even with the credit intel, we'll, I know we'll speak about the acquisition, but uh, we're an advisory, a consulting company. And and real, our core competence has always been grocery based on my background and, and John Tippett's, the other principal of MTN. So it was, you know, our again, it was a it was a consulting service where we had the relationships and the information required by the grocers and 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 what we do is is within mtn is is very specific we we parallel what the grocers do internally with their uh, research process their site location process that's boots on the ground primary data collection so we get into the you know if we're looking at a trade area or an entire market we physically visit the stores um, assess them we assess multiple uh, data points so we're looking at real estate characteristics. We're looking at shopping center characteristics and looking at the grocery landscape. And so at the end of the day, what MTN has become is really one beyond a, a consulting service is really have probably one of the most robust uh, databases of, of, of grocery out there. Um, as I look back and, and John and I, John Tippett's talk about this all the time, we, we believe we've, we've, uh, as a company, we've been into about 33,000 of, of the 40,000 grocery stores in the country. I, I've been in roughly 19,000 grocery stores um, throughout my career. So, you know, when you have that type of context and you have these relationships with the grocers in the background, it again, really what we, we, what we always try to say to our clients, our ownership clients, is we're going to immerse you in how grocers think operationally and how they look at the grocery landscape and, and, and ultimately how they forecast new opportunities. Got it. And what, who was the typical client? Was it the grocer or a real estate developer? Yeah. A great question. We, what we, when the foundation of when we started the company, uh, you know, the first few months back in 2004, we, we were building a, a, a grocery client uh, uh, client base. So we, we had three or four clients that uh, were willing to give us, uh, you know, some some opportunity to assist to kind of outsource their uh, site location needs to us. And it was probably, you know, in that three to four months, Chris, that we started to really reach out to the to the ownership side. Um, I, I would tell you early on, we were probably a little more heavy on on grocers working for grocers that probably represented 70 percent of our um, of our revenue and then you know interesting times 2007 is that you know as everybody knows the world kind of went upside down and and what was interesting is while we you know we're struggling to keep sort of those uh the ownership clients obviously we're given the you know the nature of the the uh the economy what was interesting is the grocers you know, and we'll talk about this, I know, uh, during this conversation about how resilient grocers are, but the grocers kept growing, kept looking for opportunities. I, you know, certainly, you know, high growth markets were problematic for grocers. Um, but, but, but it was interesting as we came out of the recession, we, we kind of switched. We had more developers, landlords that came to us um, and seeking, you know, our expertise and our consulting and advisory services to help identify opportunities to get in front of the grocers. So I would tell you while we were at the, you know, the first three or four years, it was more uh, grocery client uh, centric. 
the equation flipped in probably 2010 and 2011, where we were probably 70% of our revenue was then from the ownership and landlord side. And one of the things, you know, the core competency is that you guys have is your forecasting sales of grocers, what both existing and ones that may not exist. Correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we're brought in on numerous uh, engagements from grocers. They may have us look at a, a, you know, an existing facility, an existing grocery store to evaluate if that store is maximizing its potential, its sales potential. Um, you know, and we obviously, you know, a lot of what we do is looking at, you know, new opportunities for the grocers, whether that's going into a second gen space or whether they're doing a grounds up. We'll, we'll get grocers that will engage us on that. Um, landlord side, you know, they, they may anticipate a problem. Maybe they've got a dark space or, um, an empty box or, or maybe they are, they're anticipating having a, uh, an empty box. You know, you think of now what's going on with bed, bath and beyond. And, and so we'll get landlords that will in anticipation of maybe a problem engage us to evaluate, uh, proactively, uh, grocery backfill opportunities, um, and, and of course, then there's, you know, just the engagements every day that where there is absolutely an empty box and, and that, you know, that landlord is trying to, uh, you know, assess the opportunity if there's a grocery cap opportunity there. And, and, and some ask you guys to give an estimate of sales on existing grocers, correct? That are in business. Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that because that's a lot of what we do is, you know, as I talked about that database that we've built, uh, Chris, over the years, over 18 years. And again, you know, we, we wake up, if you will, and, and 18 years later, we have these 33,000 records. Um, uh, you know, we made a, a, conscientious, a conscientious decision back in about 2011 to really expand the information we were collecting. Um, you know, prior to that, we were really focused on the grocery store itself, not really paying attention to the shopping center or the co-tenancy. But, you know, we made this decision to expand into, you know, those real estate attributes and, and shopping center attributes and, and then the grocery store itself. So when we come out of a market, let's, let's say, you know, we just wrapped up the Las Vegas market, uh, 218 stores. We physically visit every single one of those stores, as I mentioned, and chief among what we collect, Chris, is accurate sales information, kind of the secret sauce of what we do, not only MTN, but really what the, the, the site location analysts do in, in, in the industry on the retail side. So you're right. When we when we come away from Vegas, we have a you know a treasure trove of information, including sales, accurate sales on the, all 218 grocery stores within that market. How close do you find your guys' grocery estimates, sales estimates, are to actuals? Like I'm sure grocers have like, all right, go go visit these five stores. Tell me what you think they do in sales. And come back to me every day. That happens, Chris. Every day there's a and and it's the you know. Listen, I I don't blame them. That's kind of you know the the charge to to tell us what how you've you know evaluated our stores. Um, I would tell you our charge, uh, and and I'm speaking even across the grocery analytic industry. The charge is to be about ninety percent accurate or higher, um, which is a high threshold. Um, and and I'll let me just elaborate on that. If you think about the grocery industry, um, it razor thin margins, right? I mean, everybody knows that mantra and, you know, and you know, that, that, um, element of error, <laughs> you know, that you just can't, it's the margin. it is those, it's those razor thin margins. And so, you know, there's so much science, um, I, you know, listen, I, I, as I mentioned, I've been doing this 38 years and, and primarily focused on grocery, and when I state this, I, I don't mean to offend anybody, but I, I, I would tell you, I still believe after 38 years, grocers bring more science than any of the retail channel out there. And again, it's it's you know, it is that fact related to, um, you know, uh, needing a, a very solid uh, sales, uh, you know, accuracy on the competitive landscape and and in order to evaluate. So, 
Yeah, it's a high threshold. And I will tell you, we've we've done a uh, a lot of research, as did Credit Intel, as they were as we were going through due diligence. And I would tell you, we're probably at about an 88 percent accuracy as we start evaluating somewhere between 88 to 90 percent as we start getting feedback from our grocery clients uh, related to how we evaluated the store versus what actuals are. Do you think that the science behind forecasting sales in grocery is that much more sophisticated to the national public retailers out there that aren't grocery? I, I really do. And, and again, not trying to diminish, you know, what other retailers or what other retail channels are doing, but, you know, grocery is, is probably it, and I'm, you know, careful when I say this, but I, but I think I can say this pretty definitively grocers across the board, you know, they're, they do field work. They, again, groups that like us or individuals trained uh, with our same skill set working within the grocery uh, uh, retail, working directly for grocers, you know, it's, it's predicated on going into the field and seeing the site. And again, that may not necessarily be um, all that unique, but it's all that information that we gather, all the analytics that support it. And, and then again, that high, that, high accuracy level that we need. What, what's interesting about grocery, Chris, is that we view it as a redistribution of dollars. You open a new grocery store, people don't eat more. So what you're doing essentially is when you open a new grocery store is you're pulling dollars away from other grocers. Now, again, that may not be exclusive to the grocery industry. I'm sure you open a new jewelry store or a Starbucks and you, you know, you are drawing, you know, you're, you're, you know, it's a redistribution of the disposable income, but grocery is distinctly defined by that. And, and again, I mean, today, aren't those, they pulling from restaurants? Some today and restaurants from them. That, absolutely. That, absolutely. A dynamic that's going on and, and accelerated with, with COVID. Um, so I, I would just say, you know, what's interesting about the the sales forecasting model that we use very sophisticated mathematic model not proprietary to us we just simply use what the you know 85% of the entire grocery community uses that model's been around about 45 years in some form or fashion but the mathematics behind it um, have always been sound and pretty much fundamentally the same and I look back at any other you know again as I talk we talk about other retail channels out there Chris I've just yet to see that level of mathematics uh, uh, that, that support that sales forecast in other retail channels. What factors might there be in a store that might throw off your number either to the good or to the bad that it's hard to account for? As we're, as we're out evaluating sales, is that what you're yeah. referencing? Yeah, look... Um, <laughs> what are some things like, you know, like uh, this store based on the based on your expertise, you're going to go back, you're going to put the information in the model. This store is going to do $30 million. But if there's XYZ going on, then all bets are off. I have no idea. Yeah, look, I mean, there's a lot of factors as we go out and visit the competition. Um, you know, a lot of times you can be deceived by, um, you know, depending on when you show up to that shopping center, that grocery store, what time of day or the day in the week, you might go in and, and if it's, you know, if it's early in the morning, maybe a Tuesday morning and, and the parking lot doesn't feel very full. Uh, you, you might, you know, you try not to draw any conclusions that way. And, and on the inverse, going in on a Saturday when it's just absolutely packed and making the wrong assessment. Um, a lot of times we'll look at product is that you know, are the stores, you know, the housekeeping is the store well stocked. And sometimes you can be deceived where, you know, out of stocks don't necessarily translate, translate into uh, the store so busy that they just can't, you know, keep product on the shelf. So, you know, what we do, I, you know, maybe a little bit of that secret sauce. Um, what we do as an industry is we actually, we, you know, in the reconnaissance, we speak to key individuals within the store. So we're not talking to a bagger or necessarily, you know, someone working the check stand. We're talking to you know, people in management roles, the produce manager, the 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 meat department manager. And and, uh, you know, and the reason you're talking to them is those individuals, Chris, 
are the, the people who really know intimately how the store is performing. So there's things, again, that you, you, you know, the aesthetics of a store, there's things that you walk in and see the physical nature of the store that you can draw some wrong uh, assumptions. That's why we're, you know, what we do is make sure we speak to somebody of knowledge. Um, and, and, you know, the last thing we can do is certainly walk up to them and say, hey, we're, we're trying to ascertain sales. Can you help us out? But you're you're asking key metrics about the store. You know, you're asking about, you know, uh, perhaps how how well the produce department is doing uh, volume wise and what percent total produce accounts for total store. So we're you know, we're trying to mitigate as much as we can from looking at the store physically, again, drawing assumptions from housekeeping or, you know, out of stocks or just general condition and making sure that we speak to somebody of knowledge about how that store is performing. Got it. Okay. So you guys started in 04 mm -hmm. and then you sell the business. We did. Yeah. And you sold the business last year, 22 or 23? Uh, November of 2022. So you sell it in right. 22. What was the, walk me through that. Let's just, I'll stop right there. Walk me well, through Well, if you haven't met, place. yeah. Uh, if you haven't met Josh Suffin, uh, he's a hell of a salesman. <laughs> and I mean, and I mean that uh, Josh was the, the, my first uh, interaction with Credit Intel. And, and uh, you know, we, we started the dialogue February of uh, 2022, uh, you know, well in advance of, of obviously a lot of due diligence, due diligence along the way. I have to concede that I really didn't know. I've heard Credit, Tell, Credit Intel's name, but didn't know much about him with and and after that first conversation with Josh, just talking about our companies and, and our client base and, and our offerings, um, it didn't take long in that first conversation for me to, to, you know, to pique my interest about, you know, what would this look like um, if, if we were to, um, you know, combine or, or be acquired. Um, you know, it was, a, you know, like any of these, these issues, you know, it, Chris, uh, intense due diligence along the way, and 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 it allowed us to really understand credited Intel's offering uh, to to the market, um, understand the leadership, and and then in the inverse, you know, they obviously dissected MTN and and really, uh, you know, really wanted to understand the whole genesis of Intel, everything we've talked about here, and and. You know where we've been, where were we at the time, and where we where are we planning to go? What was interesting is uh, we at MTN had just probably I don't know six to eight months prior to our conversation, uh, the initiation of conversations with Credit Intel, we had actually put our grocery database out into a subscription type service, um, and and what I can tell you is um, <laughs> from that standpoint being an advisory service and a consulting company and trying to move into a subscription based company, a lot of challenges there. And, um, you know, and, and again, we we're, we're a, you know, a smaller company with no expertise in that subscription side. So it was really a blessing and, and, and a, a chance of opportunity when, when Josh had reached out credit Intel to talk about, and, and as they understood what, you know, this, this immense database of 33,000 grocery records, uh, you could, you could see that that their eyes light up because now they had you know a piece of the puzzle, um, uh, you know to the to the whole shopping center you know dynamic that they that they've always tracked and now they have you know even more precise information related to, related to that daily traffic driver the grocer, so uh, you know it re really Chris outside of the you know the the intense due diligence I. I uh, John Tippett and myself, we never balked. Uh, we knew that this was the right group to to kind of lock arms with and to really take our data and our information to the next level and make it. You said, you said you never flinched. Deals are tough, and I was just part of M and A deal. I, I can't say what here, but I was part of one. And was there a point when you're like? I don't know if this is going to work. <laughs> well, there was a point when when you have the the attorneys involved. We knew conceptually everything was great, um, but you know, and again, this is such a what we do in the on the advisory side. And, and, and look, in Credit Intel certainly has advisory um, you know services, but 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 
you know, I think that just trying to get their arms around it and, and then the legal side of it. Yeah. There were a couple of times when we were like, this is pretty intense. <laughs> and we just had to step back and take a breath. And, and I have to give credit to, uh, to credit Intel and, and they, they kept us motivated all along through the whole process. Excellent. So appreciate that whole intro. I want to talk about grocery for a little bit. Great. And so let's hop right in. Let's get right in. I'm going to ask you a simple but really hard one. Okay. What is a grocery store? Well, yeah, look, uh, you know, you could, you could look at uh, the dictionary. You could look at ICSE's definition. There's a myriad of, of, you know, ways to look at the grocery store. You know how I look at it, Chris? To me, in all these years of working at the grocery store and then, you know, this, 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 this immerse, you know, intense immerse, uh, uh, immersion of all the data that we go through and all the stores we visit and the markets and the cities and the trade areas. To me, the grocer is the focal point of the community. And I know that sounds tacky. I, I know it does. I know it sounds like lift service. But think about that grocery store. I, I, look, I'll, I'll take gyms out of the equation because people go there every day. And well, that, that I, I said, you know, a lot of people subscribe to go there every day. But that grocer, you're, you're visiting that. I think the last statistic I saw was a minimum of 1.5 times a week that you're you're visiting that store. And and it's the essentials. Right. I mean, again, we've been through this with COVID. And I, but, you know, I hate to kind of regurgitate this, but right. That reinforced what the grocery store is. Chris, that is your essentials. I mean, it is your daily needs. It's your food. And, and I think where it really comes home to me, Chris, is when we get in, you know, we've been fortunate enough that we've, you know, we've worked with municipalities and we've worked with, you know, the, the public sector. And, and where it really becomes so stark to me of what the grocery is, is when you see when there isn't a grocery store, food deserts or rural markets, or you can even be in, you know, you can be in a dense, <laughs> densely populated area and still not have direct access to a grocery store. So to me, that's what the, it, it is such a foundation and a focal point of the community. Uh, that's what I call it is, is it's, is that it's just, it's, it's a necessary. I'm going to challenge you, Doug, because I think that could be a lot of different stores. There's any store could be the focal point. Does the, the product mix that it has or anything like that have anything to do with defining? Because in my business, I have to define it much tighter than that. Sure. Absolutely. And, and look, you're, you're right. I mean, you could look at a lot of different categories and say, yeah, look, that's a, that's a primary need. I mean, I think what's interesting about the grocery store is if you look at the evolution of, I mean, this is going back to, you know, the late 1800s when, you know, Barney Kroger started the, you know, this concept of a, you know, a grocery store. And then you look at the evolution where it was kind of the seventies where it expanded into a supermarket, right? So, so now the grocers aren't just, you know, it's not just a meat counter, a little bit of produce, and then some. Don't take away my next question from me. <laughs> I hope I don't. <laughs> but but if you think about that that evolution, and and then what the grocers are trying to do, Chris, I mean, you know, I I, I think it's interesting to watch how they've you know brought additional services in dry cleaning, and they've brought you know, uh, you know banking services into there and 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 then at the all the time you know floral and and now pet care it you know i again i i look at that grocer and what they're trying to achieve they're trying to be all-encompassing if you will as far as daily needs so not well i would i would challenge that right because some of the specialty grocers are not trying to be all-encompassing Agreed. Ag agreed. And there's, you know, and listen, there, there's a role for them. I, I, I think it's like any concept, uh, any retail concept. I, I, you know, these niche players, uh, you know, you can find them in every category. Um, you know, I, they, they certainly, they, they provide a need and the right demographic and the right competitive landscape. But I just think more globally of that, you know, your question is, you know, what's a grocery store? I, I think of that conventional more, that conventional supermarket concept that you know really tries to to be everything within that i'm gonna i'm gonna give you 
two definitions that I've found. Okay, great. So I don't know that I love either of them. Okay. Merriam-Webster, I certainly, I, I, I don't like this one, which is it, it defines it as a store that sells food and household supplies, period. Mm-hmm. To me, that's too broad. That yeah. could be, that could be, I mean, a department store could be a grocery store because they sell household supplies and they sell some food. So that to me is a store. Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't consider a grocery store. I will, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the USDA has a definition of a grocery store. Let's hear it. So the USDA definition of a grocery store is a supermarket or a large grocery store. If they reported at least 2 million in annual sales and contained all the major food departments found in traditional supermarket, including fresh meat, poultry, dairy, dry and packaged goods, and frozen foods. Well, uh, very sterile (laughs) (laughs) definition, right? But you would expect that from the the USDA. I mean, USDA's definition of a grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't give you the warm and fuzzy that, you know, just the, like a, a very straight, you know, straight, straightforward definition. Yeah. A, a, again, I, I, you know, there's, you know, there, there are a lot of ways you can define it. And, and I agree with you, Chris, to the point that, you know, you could look at a lot of different retailers um, and, and how they go to market and what they offer. But again, I come back and I, I think of those, if you think of like the, you know, again, in, 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 in my experience, you know, we, we don't get a lot of clients reaching out and saying, hey, you know, I, I need a, a paint, I got to have a paint store here, or I've got to have sporting goods here. I mean, it starts with the foundation, the fundamental of, I've got to be able to serve my daily needs. I've got to be able to have food, access to food and, and you know, and the ancillary products. Right. So in, in my world, we have to define these things right and so we have we uh, we have leases that define the difference between off price discount and outlet you go to anyone off the street and they think they're all the same and we have distinct definitions for all of them no different than there's a very we have to define the difference between target walmart then what some might call traditional supermarkets, Kroger, Publix, ShopRite, then the specialty supermarkets, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, Aldi, Lidl, what have you. And and if you don't get the definition right, it could mess up a whole real estate project. Oh, sure. So, and so I'm, you know, when we think of traditional supermarket, I think a lot of people are thinking like, Kroger Publix, but just by what you were saying before, you mentioned daily needs, right? Do you put target into, uh, into, into that? Is that the same as Kroger in your world? Well, look, I mean, it, you, 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 certainly we get much more granular and, and we, you know, everything from the, we look at the offering to, and look at the customer type and, 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 uh, and, and and each of those stores we can define even you know further. I mean, we we talk about mass merchandisers, right? We can talk about super target versus a regular target. So right, yeah, right. And and it's it's interesting you say that, Chris, because we really define there's thir- about thirteen categories, format types. So maybe to your point, you know, we look at you know natural organic. We look at quality service, right? Which would be a Wegmans kind of a Harris Teeter upscale. We look at discount Hispanic. We look at limited assortment. We look at discount. Uh, um, uh, we look at again. We look at the super center format. So you you know yes, I I make a generic statement about the supermarket, but there's no doubt that you know I mean you can have a trade area in any given market in in more dynamic markets, but you can have every one of those categories within a trade area, right? And I think that's what's so unique about you know that that the grocery space is. Is there's just such a unique offer, all, all centered around? Let's admit that you know you asked me about Target. I mean, think of what Target, the decision they made 10, 12 years ago, right, to really decide that they, you know, they they needed to bring a grocery component to this. Why? My view, 
they needed the daily driver. They needed that 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 push to get customers into the door more often, right? And and that's what it comes down to. So when I look at you know I look at a target, a, what we call P fresh, more of a conventional target. I mean, think what they've done. About twenty five percent of that square footage within that you know a ninety thousand square foot target is is grocery related. And again, it comes back to driving that need for you know to to bring that customer in more often. Um, you know, to expand their, their other offerings. So, um, yep. um, random one, random, and then we'll get into some of this. I appreciate you going through, uh, you know, uh, playing Mr. Dictionary for me. <laughs> you come with the, a plethora of supermarket experience. One of the things you've always heard is like, is this brand loyalty that supermarkets have. And so as Kroger has, you know, purchased businesses over the years, they haven't changed banners, mm -hmm. right? Yep. They have Ralph's on the West coast and, you know, you know, Kroger here and Harris, all Teeter. The, Harris Teeter and all these things. And, sure. you know, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The specialty grocers and mass merchants have figured out how to cross market, cross trade areas under the same banner. Aldi, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, Wegmans now, HEB. Why do you think they've been able to do that where some traditional supermarkets have struggled? Well, look, like all, I, if you take like Aldi, I think it's a really good example. I think Walmart and Target, they're offering so big. They're, you know, top 20 Fortune 500. I do think it's a little different. Uh, but when you take someone like Aldi, who's expanded so robustly and done such a tremendous job, and now they're like, they're on like all these food lists of top 20, these proprietary private label items in the store. How do you think they were able to do that versus some of the traditionals who haven't crossed over? or had a, a lack of success when they tried? Yeah, well, look, I, I mean, let's start with the foundation that, uh, you know, that you have to provide, you have to provide something of value, right? Um, and and to gain that loyalty. I, I even think of, you know, maybe even a more applicable case study is Trader Joe's, Chris. I mean, if you look at the evolution of, of Trader Joe's, you know, I think some people think that they, they, they came out of the gate wildly successful. Uh, they didn't. They struggled for years to get that that reputation. What's their value? What's their offering? Right. So to me, I I, I break down. I, I, I hope I'm answering this, but I, I break down uh, grocery into three different categories that you've got to place in in somewhere in the space or between one of these three. But or or maybe you play in all three. But um, You've got to be, you know, we use this word experiential, but I still believe that you can have an offering that's an experience. And I look at Trader Joe's, I look at Aldi, staying with your example, Aldi, you know, figured out how to become a treasure hunt, right? At the end of the day, to me, I look at them almost like a small Costco. I walk into an Aldi and, and in that promotional aisle, there's something different. There's always something of value. They're value driven, right? But there's also a little bit of an experience. And then I do think that the second component is that it's it's having a value proposition, you know, right? It, and it doesn't mean necessarily even just distinctly uh, being, uh, you know, price oriented, but there's got to be some value you're bringing to the customer. And then I, I think the third that's arisen, you know, over the, you know, the, the, the past, you know, few years is a, a, techno, a technology component. Now, I'm going to be careful saying that because I also, uh, you know, we've watched Amazon come in and go all in on the Amazon Fresh with that technology side. So I, I think when I say technology, I think there's something that, that, that has to be offered as far as convenience. I mean, you look at the the self-serve uh, checkouts. Uh, now, again, we can we could debate that, uh, you know, on a whole different show. But yeah. I but I do believe that, it, you know, you either providing an experience and or a value and or some type of a technology component to this. So I, when you ask me about all, how do they, you know, how do these certain groups cross that threshold and build that loyalty 
and other groups just struggled with, with, with the banners and the names and how do they resonate? You know, I, I just think that's it. I think you've got to fall in those categories and look at Aldi, right? Like I, again, coming back to them, it is such a value proposition and a treasure hunt. Look at Trader Joe's, same thing. That private label means something now to people. It took a while to build that. I, and I think the other thing, Chris, too, is, it, it, you know, we talk about niche and we, we talk about these specialty grocers. I mean, you're always going to have groups that appeal to the masses. We, you know, we call those conventional, right? Those are the Kroger's, the Publix. I mean, I, I think that's harder to build that a little bit of that loyalty because people are going to, you know, if, you're, if your Publix is great as Publix is, you, you can't bring in that, that, that Trader Joe's experience. You just can't. And so I do think that, you know, you, you get, again, these national companies that have, you know, they're trying to appeal to the masses, Chris. And, and, and then when you get to like the Wegmans, they know distinctly who that customer is. They just know it. They live it and breathe it. And they, and they, you know, and they design their stores, they design their experience, their locations around really understanding that customer and really laser focused where to place their stores. I, I hope that answered. I'm not sure if it did, but. I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's. I got two more real things I want to talk about. Maybe three. Okay. <laughs> You're making me sweat. We'll, we'll see what happens in, in this one here. <laughs> okay. Right now, where we are today, going into the ICSC Las Vegas, what are the three, from the grocery perspective, less about the real estate side of the world, what are the three hot topics in grocery right now? What are like the business people in the grocery business? What are they thinking about? What are they talking about? What are the trend? What are the, the hot topics? Well, I'd say one, and and uh, you know, while we're hearing some easing, I, I would tell you inflation. And inflation has been a topic for a year. Um, you know, it's interesting. I you know, you know the the grocers, right? They, they I mean, they're such a, a pulse on the you know on the economy. Um, you know, because they can watch the trends of what people are buying. If they're going to private label, if they, you know, that that's such a pulse right within that grocery store of how people are trading their dollars. So look, it's, it, you know, I think what's interesting about inflation, Chris, is, you know, there's some groups, we just spoke of Aldi. Think of grocery outlets, save a lot. There are groups that are flourishing in, in this in this environment, but there's other groups that have just, you know, we've got a couple of clients that we speak to every every other week and and even operational issues. And they will tell you that trying to communicate to the customer that why the prices are going up because the CPG companies are raising prices. It, 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 a lot of times it falls on deaf ears. Um, so I would tell you that inflation is still a topic, even though we're seeing a little bit of you know relief in, in grocery prices the last uh, you know, the last couple of reporting quarters here. Okay, so that's one inflation. Yep, I'm with you. Um, I would say that uh, a, a big topic, and 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 maybe we'll address this uh, in in a few minutes. But I, you know, I'm going to have to say it. The Kroger Albertson is a topic. Got it. Um, All right. And 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 look, we'll I, get to let, yeah, let's hold off. We're going to get to that yeah, one. That's absolutely. Two. And Give then I would third. say, and I and I know you asked me to, you know, uh, not to to get too much into uh, the real estate side of it, but. I would say construction costs, though, I, I you know, it just is a it, it's an issue out there. Um, if I took that one aside, I would say supply chain is getting better. Chris, it's labor. The third one is absolutely labor. Everybody is struggling with it. Um, and it's and it lists it's 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 an inherent problem, um, but becoming even more of an issue of retention. Right. Um, again, I, you know, Grocers just by nature being, you know, kind of that retail sector, there's some turnover, but boy, every grocer we talk to trying to find continuity in employment and, and retaining them, always a topic, especially since COVID. Um, okay. What about is, is the topic of e-commerce Bopis omnichannel that that's kind of the t that's the tail it's not as it's not as forward as it once was yeah i i believe that's a true statement chris i i think look i i mean it's you know 
if you think of the the relative short time period that that, that e-commerce has been on the you know front and center, I, I step back to you know I, I mentioned I, I uh, had an opportunity to spend three years at, at Ahold, and at the time Ahold was you know out of the forefront working with Peapod, if you yep. know that name, Very and that familiar. was 2000, 2003. But it was so, you know, you know, they were testing the waters and everybody, all the other grocers were kind of like, well, we'll watch and see what happens. Um, and and then fast forward, you know, even prior to COVID, I, I you know, obviously a topic of conversation. Um, I think what's interesting, Chris, I think what people are reconciling when I say people, grocers specifically, what they're reconciling is, I think we put so much forethought into e-commerce. We were so you know, so laser focused that we had to play in that space and we had to figure it out. Now, I think what's interesting, you know, I, I, the last statistic that, you know, I, I saw from, um, uh, you know, that was that was published is, it, you know, e-commerce is still accounting for about 10 to 13 percent. You know, we saw an elevated during COVID by design. But isn't it amazing, Chris, that we're talking about 13% of the grocery dollar going to, to e-commerce? And I think there, I, I'm here to tell you, we saw it, and I, I'm not going to name names in grocers, but some of the most prominent grocers were so hyper-focused on e-commerce, they were forgetting about the other 85%. And what I mean is store conditions were, were lacking. Labor was lacking. Um, the checkout, you know, just everything making the checkout fluid. And, and so I think that there's this pendulum, a little bit of a pendulum swinging back. It's important, Chris. E-commerce is important. But I think as long as groups feel like they have a viable platform, that if anything were to rise like COVID again, that they could facilitate that. I, I, I think that there's more of a trained thought to that physical store. I really believe that. I'm not. And again, I'm not saying that these aren't topics of discussion. We have conversations with our grocery clients all the time. But I think the recognition is we're talking about a minority of our customers using this platform. We better start focusing on that in-store experience. The, I agree. I, I've even seen, I've seen both, which is I've seen some retailers put in stores that, that the, the consumer like letting them know, hey, you don't have to come to the store. You can buy it online. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that in the grocery sure. stores. Absolutely. I've seen that. And yep. then I've seen other promotional things that said if you buy it in the store versus online, then you know there's some discount for driving to the store. Right. One of the stats I heard a while ago, and I'm not sure if it's still relevant, is that like the average grocer loses about $25 per delivery. I don't know if that's the right stat and that still holds water anymore. It, it does, Chris. And I think that was the stat I, I, I had seen is, is look, I mean, what's amazing about this is you have some of the, the most prominent players, right, in the entire retail space, Walmart, Amazon, Target. Um, and yet nobody, as far as I, you know, I'm immersed in this every day, I've yet to hear anybody make it profitable, not even Amazon, right? That, that, that if anybody could figure out you know, the e-commerce space and make it profitable. They haven't. And and listen, I, I, I you know, look, I'm here to tell you that they're smart people and, and they're going to figure this out. But I also think at the same time, Chris, they're going to figure out this balance. How do we, you know, how do we serve that customer that really, really wants that, that online experience, make it fluid and how do we make money? Um, but I still believe that at the end of the day, <laughs> that the grocers uh, and retailers in general have got to always keep their eyes on that, on that, on that physical store. So you've seen a lot of money deployed in the e-commerce solutions. No one, you haven't seen anyone be profitable at e-commerce grocery yet. The, to give everyone context, if you were to give like, what's the one determinant that makes e-commerce grocery so challenging to be profitable? If you were to give like, I know there's a lot of little, you know, uh, ingredients in that cake, but what would be one? Well, and again, it's, a, it's an overused uh, uh, concept here, but it's, it's the last mile, Chris. It's, it's the expense 
it's it's all the you know, I, now I've I've uh, I've uh, disregarded what how you asked me to explain this, but because I make it a little more complicated. But think of the hands that are touching the product right at the end of the day. There's still, and I know that, that look, there's a, a, you know Kroger with with what they're doing with technology and, and even Amazon. But at the end of the day, they're still having to put it in the vehicle, somebody touch it to put it in the vehicle, drive it and, and hand it to the customer. I think that's the problem. Nobody's figured out the last mile to make it, it profitable. Got it. Okay. Well, that was super helpful. So we've got the top three in your eyes, just to go back, hottest topics, inflation, labor. And what was the third one? Well, I, I brought up merger and acquisitions. Merger and acquisitions. Okay. Speaking of that, Kroger and Albertsons. What do you think here? Got here. I think it's going to get done, um, I, but I think that it's going to be a tremendous pain point. And and I and I can kind of see your skepticism. I I I I, I, I look, Chris. I, this is what I'd say. There's going to have to be tremendous concessions. And it, isn't it interesting that when this started, you know. Eight months ago, when this kind of hit the, the news or long, or even prior to that, you know, isn't it interest, interesting that, uh, you know, there was a 150 store spin code put off it, you know, like, hey, here we go, FTC, we're going to get ahead of this, we're going to put 150 stores. Now we're talking somewhere upwards of 600 stores. So the, to me, Chris, what it becomes is what's the pain point, right? Or even <laughs> more, you've got, you know, you're saying more and, and it could be higher than that. So how bad does does Kroger and Albertsons want this and what are the concessions? And I, I, I feel like this is just me, Chris, one man's opinion, but I feel like that they are, you know, they're hell bent on making this happen, both companies. And I feel like they're, they're, they're you know, they're going to make these concessions, uh, uh, you know, to the FTC. I, I just see it, it happening, but at a, at a pretty steep cost here to both companies. So, I've pontificated this, not not a lot on the podcast. I try to stay out of politics, but I because I think this is more political than we would like it oh, to be, for and, sure. that, and and that's that's why I, it is what it is. So, yeah. uh, so talk about a couple of things. So in a in something like this, there would be, you know, the to, for antitrust, the FTC would force a sale of a certain amount of stores. You mentioned it started at 150, moved to 650. It's it's seemingly going to go higher, but let's let's assume it's some number between 500 and 1,000. Okay. Who's taking all these stores? Yeah, and that certainly <laughs> becomes the issue, right? Because at the end of the day, the first thing that the FTC is going to want is a grocer to backfill it, right? Um, and that's and, right. Yeah, and and then what I think is interesting, Chris, and I again a whole different podcast here that you could put together, but you know people are throwing Amazon into this. That hey, they're they're they could come in and buy a a, a big swath of stores. I have a hard time believing that one they're going to get scrutinized at some point, you know, for their market share, even their online, you know, existence. I do think that there would be an additional scrutiny to, uh, to, to Amazon. The other thing I look at and, you know, why is Amazon dumping a lot of stores? I, if you just saw where, you know, they're exiting, you know, um, any thoughts of going into Detroit and Minneapolis. So they're, you know, they're peeling off stores. I, I just don't see that being viable. Now that said, Chris, I will tell you, that, you know, we have a lot of grocery clients out there that um, apparently, and, and I'm here to, with my arm to the square, tell you I have not seen a list, but we've got grocery clients that have are looking at the list right now. And uh, oh, so let me let me back up. Let me back up. Let me. I'm bullish on the grocery market. We've done a bunch of grocery deals. There's grocers who want to expand. But and they're they are expanding. My point to the question was, we're talking about 500 to 1,000. Yeah. 
we're north of 500. Let's call a spade a spade. We're, no, we're going to be, there's going to be north of 500. And these boxes have to have a grocer and they're going to have to be in markets where some existing grocers not. So they need a store. And you're going to have to have that quantity willing to eat up that much space altogether. Yeah. And we're yeah. talking about, just to my point before, this was a lead-in, which is majority of grocers, the traditional sense that would be easy backfills, don't, cro don't cross borders. They end at some border. Right. There's very few that have the same banner across multiple borders. You know, right now, Publix has been expanding and they've been bucking the trend. Kroger did it for years. But in general, most of these groups, they cross borders with a different banner. So if you don't have a banner in that market, I think it's going to be a challenge. I think this divestiture, not just in the, the cost to divestiture, but just in the pure the FTC is going to want another grocery store in those locations. I don't think that's easy. Well, and, and Chris, a great point. And, and let's step back and, and look at the Albertson Safeway uh, merger. And, and if you know the story about Hagen, right, a 19 store chain based out of the state of Washington, the Seattle area. They wake up one day, decide they're going to, I don't remember the, the, the number, but, you know, go from 19 stores to almost 200 stores, took them into Arizona and Nevada and California overnight. What happened? Six months later, it derailed. <laughs> and, and, and I will tell you, a lot of the fallout um, was the FTC. FTC lost a lot of uh a lot of credibility for letting that go through. So Chris, I'm agreeing you with you on that end that look, it's it, it, do, let's, let's pick that number and say it's 700 stores. I, I agree that that is absolutely problematic. And what you can't do is force, you know, again, Hagen was sort of this forced, you know, competitor to, to take, to come in and so, be a solution. And it was a disaster. Don't, I, I, this is my feeling, Chris. And, and, there's going to have to be concessions all along the way. Uh, if, if it's 700 stores and there's there's 150 that get left out there that aren't backfilled by a grocer, that may have to be the case. And and now look at the right now look at the landscape. Right. You're you're on the, the, the landlord side, the ownership side. I mean, there are so many considerations here to your point. I would agree with it just to magically say we've got 700 stores. And groups will fill, fill, fill that vacuum up. That's very problematic to think. I, I, I think there are significant amount of grocers looking to expand. We're doing it. The, at that number, in those specific spots is what the FTC wants. Yep. I think that makes it really challenging. So yeah. we'll see. So yeah. that's one. But so we can pontificate on whether the deal goes through or not. I hope everybody gets what they want and and everyone's happy and there's lollipops and rainbows. That's what I really hope. But let's, let's, I want to take two things that people aren't talking about. Everyone's talking about everyone. All everyone can say is, will the deal happen? Will it not? And if you get past that, then how many stores will get divested? That's all I hear about. That's a, that's the conversation quite candidly. I'm over that conversation. Everyone's got their opinion. Here's what I want to see. Let's assume the deal happens. This is what no one's talking about. What does it mean to the grocery industry? What happens? Well, look, you, you've uh, you've now got a dominant player that and dominant players that are now even more dominant, right? I mean, that let's just call it what it is. It's you're you're now, you know, you're you're taking a, a what is already a mega chain <laughs> and making it even bigger. I mean, I I do worry about that, Chris. I now now again. Kroger and Albertsons are quick to say that we still, even after that, we're still not the largest chain, right? That's still Walmart has outpaced us. Um, so, I, but I, listen, I, what I think happens is, I mean, this is why I said, this is a, what the topic going on in the industry is we talk to our different grocery clients. I think there's a big worry about that, how dominant they become. And, and 
in in the you know the saturation of markets you know markets and market share i mean you look at a phoenix you know a, i mean there's a there's going to have to be a lot of fallout there um uh, and, i mean a lot of divestiture to to make sure that you know kroger isn't sitting there in a you know in a hugely dominant market share position so you know look i yeah i mean it it's everything what that, is the benefit to the grocery industry if it happens um <laughs> The benefit, um, geez, I don't know if I could articulate a, a specific like this is, you know, a win-win for everybody. I I, I, I I, mean, you've caught me kind of flat-footed with that, Chris. I don't know that there is a, a, a people standing up just as an industry and cheering this. I, I don't see that it's a win-win situation uh, because, again, it's you're going to take, you know, you know, two different companies that have different propositions, offerings, price propositions, and you're going to marry them. I mean, by definition, these are going to, you know, these, all these stores are going to look alike and provide pretty much the same service and the same pricing. I mean, look, you know, I don't, I'm like you, this is, it it gets into the political realm here when you talk about these, these type of of mergers at this level. Um, You know, there's all these points out there that Kroger and Albertsons are making about, look, it gives us ability to bigger buying power. We can now compete against Walmart and Amazon and lower our prices. I, I, you know, I I haven't done enough of the research to be able to say, yeah, that happens with these mergers. I I don't, you know, I, I don't know if that's the case. Now, on the flip side, I guess you could say if I'm a competitor and now all these stores are looking alike, they're conventional and they just, you know, they... However, they're going to banner these. I don't know if anybody's even spoken. I, I suspect, Chris, that you made an earlier point about how most chains just kind of keep those banners. I, I, I haven't even thought about if, if it's an Albertsons, uh, does it change to a Kroger? I don't I don't know. If, you know. I'm sure they've figured that out. But but I do think if there is an advantage, if I'm the competitor in this market, outside of the fact they might have to divest some stores, maybe even some strong stores, you know, we, we talked about the niche players, Chris, a little bit earlier and how they know to come in and, and they've defined that customer and they offering to make a differentiation. Maybe that's it. Maybe you say everybody, you know, now I've got all these stores that now even more look alike. Now I can come in as a competitor and really differentiate myself in some type of format or offering. But other than that, I don't know if, there's any, if it's a win-win it's all around. I don't see it. Well, then let's go to this. What's the impact on the grocery industry if it doesn't happen? Um, well, look, I, I, I don't I think it's just business as usual. I mean, well, let's say this. I would say that it probably is going to uh, could be a precursor to future acquisitions that, I mean, let, let, you know, you look at the history of these things happen all the time, more on regional basis. We don't really see these large scale uh, acquisition mergers come M and A's coming along often, but I I don't honestly, Chris, I, I I think it's, it's like anything, probably a lot of griping and, and amongst Kroger and, and Albertsons, the attorneys make out like bandits and then, but everybody probably goes back to the market and, and competes um, and and Albertsons and 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 Kroger just, you know, like go back to where it was before. That's how I view it. I don't outside of having an impact on the mindset of of and and the, you know, and the reality of being able to get mergers done at this level. I, I think if it doesn't get done, I think it's going to be, you know, a shot across the bow that the FTC is just not going to allow these type of mergers of this of this scale. Okay. Got it. Well, we are running uh short on time. This was fantastic. I really appreciate it. I want to bring us to the last part of our show. Great. You ready? I'm ready. I call it retail wisdom. Are you ready? I'm ready. I got three questions for you. Here they go. One. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? Um, sports authority. Got it. Number two, what's the last item over $20 you bought in a store? Uh, patio umbrella at Costco in store. Wholesale club or grocer? 
that's, that's it. But let me tell you this, I, I live within about a half a mile of a grocery store here in Utah. Um, but I, I can tell you every day what I've spent and it's always over $20. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. If you and I were shopping at Target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in? Oh, Chris, you've opened up a can of worms. Just ask my wife. As I mentioned to you, I've been in about 19,000 grocery stores. I walk in the store. I'm not going to tell you I walk every aisle, Chris, of a Target, but I walk virtually every aisle. And my mind is is set to, you know, my analytical side just never, never stops. So I'm walking at looking at out of stocks. I'm looking at presentation. I'm looking at the how are the, the employee interactions. So you're going to have to follow me. And I have a feeling you do the same, Chris. <laughs> it's your retail background, but I just, I move through that store and I try to see as much as I can of that store, whether I'm going in for my wife's going in for one product or I'm going in for, you know, the same, uh, just a simple shopping experience turns into a half hour walk of the store. Got it. Okay. Well, Doug, this has been great. Really appreciate it. Um, thanks Thank so much you. for your time. Thank you for listening to retail retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives, so it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.